This evening, we're continuing our overview of the Old Testament book titled Job. With this as the focus, if you would, let's open our Bibles to Job chapter 18. And as you make your way to the 18th chapter of Job, I just want to take a moment to put our text back into its context. It'll first help us to remember that the bulk of this book is centered around a conversation that unfolded between a man named Job and his three friends who were named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And I'll remind you that it was back in the beginning of this book. That's when we learned about the day when Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they heard about the pain and the suffering of their friend Job. And so they left their homes and they, they traveled in order to go to the home of Job and they wanted to comfort him. They wanted to encourage Job with corrective counsel. And after arriving, you know, they sat in silence for seven days as they mourned with their friend Job. And then after that period of mourning was over, each man began to take his turn, encouraging Job that he might realize that his suffering was being caused by his unrepentant sin and the punishment that he deserved. I'll remind you that Eliphaz spoke first, followed by Bildad, and then finally Zophar. And each one of these guys uh, accused Job of living in sin. And while they respectfully gave Job the opportunity to respond to their accusations, well, they were quick to reject his defense. And one reason why, well, it's because they truly believed that the pain and the suffering of Job was actually a punishment from the Lord. Well, once the first round was finished, that's when Eliphaz kicked off with a second round of unfounded accusations. And for the past two weeks, we've taken the time to consider Job's response to his well-meaning and yet misguided friend. And now here in our text tonight, we find Bildad. He's now stepping forward to present his second round of accusations. And as we continue to consider the false accusations that he's presenting here in this chapter, well, there should be no doubt in our minds that Bildad was actually doing his best to convince Job that his pain and his suffering was explicit evidence that he was walking on the path of wickedness. Now, I'll remind you that we've already learned that Job was an upright man. We've already discovered that Job was a man who feared God and shunned evil. And with that being the case, we also know that the accusations that Bildad and his friends were making uh, against Job, they were patently false. And yet Bildad was still convinced that the afflictions of Job was, uh, was actually proof of God's punishment. And it's sad to say that there are many in the church today who have embraced a basic theology which is similar to the beliefs of Job's counselors. And just to be clear, I'm referring to those who have bought into the belief that the Christian who walks by faith will always enjoy the prosperity of health and wealth. And listen, if that's true, if it's true that Christians who walk by faith will always enjoy the prosperity of health and wealth, Well, then it only stands to reason that the believer who isn't enjoying immediate prosperity by way of health and wealth, they must be living in sin. And the reason why is because they're failing to secure the blessings of true faith. Now, the chances are here that there are some, if not many here tonight, who have been counseled by those who have bought into this belief. Maybe you started getting sick, or maybe you lost your job, maybe you're you know, struggling to keep up with your bills, and, and, and some well-meaning yet mistaken believer comes along and begins to counsel you, much like Job's counselors. 
They want to let you know that, that there's probably sin in your life that you need to repent of because why would God withhold finances from a Christian who is walking by faith and these sorts of things? And knowing that it's not uncommon to find Christians who will counsel us in these sorts of ways, uh, we should ask uh, you know, a, a very simple question. The question is this, is sickness the evidence of sin. And, not, and I'm not meaning to ask, you know, is, is sickness from the fall, from Adam's sin, is sickness part of the curse? Of course it is. We know that sickness is part of the curse, which was caused by Adam's sin. But we're not talking about Adam's sin, but, but our sins. Is, is it that we sin and as a result, God makes us sick? Is that the case? Is that true? What about poverty? Is poverty the proof that God is punishing us for a lack of faith? With these questions in mind, I want to take some time to consider the arguments of Bildad as we continue to investigate the correlation between our walk with the Lord and the reason for the trials and the troubles that we endure. And so with this as the focus, let's turn our attention now to the the 18th chapter of Job. If you would look with me here, beginning at verse 1, here we learn that Bildad the Shuhite answered and said, "'How long till you put an end to words?' Gain understanding, and afterward we will speak. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? Well, here in the beginning of this chapter, we find Bildad. He's turning Job's words back on himself. And I'll remind you, it was back in chapter 16. That's where Job responded to Eliphaz by declaring this. He asks, shall words of wind have an end or what provokes you? That you answer. In other words, Joe was basically asking Eliphaz, "Will you ever stop talking? Will you ever just just be quiet? You know, just when will this end?" Well, now here in our text tonight, we find Bildad responding to this by declaring, "How long till you put an end to words?" He's basically turning Job's argument on himself, and he's accusing Job of being the long-winded one. And as we consider how many words each person spoke, yeah, Job was a bit on the long-winded side, and, and yet, you know, this is how they're going back and forth. We also find Bildad responding to the argument that Job continued to present here, and he informs his friends that, that they weren't as wise uh, as they, they thought themselves to be. That was the argument that Job presented back in Job chapter 12. There Job declares, ask the beasts and they will teach you. And the birds of the air, and they will tell you, or speak to the earth, and it will teach you. And the fish of the sea will explain to you. In other words, it was back in chapter 12, that's where Job informed them that the beasts and the birds of the earth could teach them a thing or two because they just weren't that smart. Not only that, but he also assured them that the fish of the sea could also explain things to them, like, you know, the seaweed is always greener in someone else's lake and and lessons like that. Well, I have no doubt that Bildad was offended by this defensive dig, and it's there in the middle of verse 2. There he responds to what Job said back in chapter 12. He responds by declaring, you gain understanding and afterward we'll speak. Why are we counted as beasts and regarded as stupid in your sight? In other words, Bildad was basically saying, we're not stupid, you're stupid. And, and then, you know, Job's like, no, you're stupid. And then Bildad's like, no, you're stupid. You're the stupid one. You're stupider. As we consider these debate tactics, <laughs> if you want to call them that, but, uh, you know, I just want to take a moment to remind you of the words of King Solomon. It's actually Proverbs 15, verse 1. That's where Solomon declares, 
A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. In other words, those who respond with gentle words will effectively turn down the emotional heat while those who respond with harsh words are are basically turning up the flame. Those who respond with harsh words are are causing tempers to flare. And and listen, there are times when a strong response is needed, so I don't mean to suggest that we should always be milquetoast Christians with never a strong word to say. There, There are times for that. And yet I also believe that we do well to learn how to respond to those who challenge us with gentle words, which help to end the disagreement, or at least to keep it you know, uh, at a friendly uh, level. Whether we're talking about arguments with our spouse, or disagreements with a boss, or a co-worker, or kids, or whatever, we'd all do well to remember that harsh words are effectively throwing verbal gasoline on the fire. Conversely, a soft, gentle response helps to put the fire out. And so we might consider that next time we find ourselves in the middle of a disagreement that appears to be heading kind of towards the the heated debate. Sadly, Bildad wasn't interested in putting the fire out. No one said he was more interested in bringing Job to a place of repentance. And to prove my point, let's pick up our study of Job chapter 18. You would look with me there at verse 4. Here, Bildad asks, You who tear yourself in anger, shall the earth be forsaken for you? Or shall the rock be removed from its place? Well, once again, we find Bildad very concerned about the rock and his next movie. But uh, no, that's, that's not the rock we're talking about. Bildad's actually turning Job's words around on himself. And I'll remind you that it was back in chapter 16. There Job shared his struggles with the Lord by declaring this. He speaks of the Lord and says, He tears me in his wrath. And hates me. He gnashes at me with his teeth. My adversary sharpens his gaze on me. In other words, Job had come to the conclusion that the Lord was the one who was tearing him into pieces. And it's for this reason that he was beginning to believe that the Lord actually hated him. Well, in response to this, we find Bildad now using the same Hebrew word, which is rendered tear as another accusation against Job. Notice again there in verse 4, again he declares, you who tear yourself. That word tear, well that's the same Hebrew word that Job used back in Job 16 verse 9. So Bildad's saying, you're the one tearing yourself in anger. And so he asks, shall the earth be forsaken just for you? Or shall the rock be removed from its place? In other words, Bildad's trying to convince Job that he was the one hurting himself. He was hurting himself, and the reason why is because the Lord had established the natural order of things, which includes torment and tribulation for those who are living in sin. And so, you know, Bildad is saying, hey, you're doing this to yourself because you simply won't repent. You know, much like the earth, which is set on a predetermined course, Bildad was convinced that Job's punishment had been ordered by the Lord. He's operating under the assumption that God's the one punishing Job, and therefore, what can Job do fighting against God? It's not going to work. There's no way to fight against God, so he might as well repent. With this in mind, you know, Bildad is assuring Job here that his anger was entirely unreasonable and and, and any person who expects the Lord to change the course of things, the, the way that he's ordained things to be, it would be unreasonable to, to think that God should change all of this simply because 
we don't like it. Now, in order to more fully grasp Bildad's perspective, I should remind you that Job's friends had come to believe that good people always enjoy the prosperity of health and wealth, and wicked people are going to be punished with sickness and poverty. That, that's their, their frame of mind. Therefore, when they all heard about the trials and the troubles of Job, they immediately concluded that their friend was actually a wicked man who was receiving the punishment that he deserved. They probably imagined that Job had wandered from the path of righteousness and he began living in sin, and so God is now punishing him by taking away his wealth and taking away his health. And in order to further grasp Bildad's perspective, I want to continue to consider the case that he's presenting to Job. And so look with me here at Job chapter 18. We'll pick up our study beginning at verse 5. Here Bildad goes on to declare, The light of the wicked indeed goes out, and the flame of his fire does not shine. The light is dark in his tent, and his lamp beside him is put out. Now, here in these verses, we find Bildad describing the way that that the Lord deals with the wicked. And just to be clear, this word wicked, which is found there in verse 5, it's translated from a Hebrew word, which was used of those who are spiritually unrighteous, morally wrong, ethically evil, and guilty before God. And it's here in these verses where we find Bildad accusing Job of being all of these things. He's saying, hey, the light of the wicked indeed goes out. And he's aiming this right at Job. As a matter of fact, this was precisely the point that Bildad makes as as he assures Job here that the lamp that provides light in the home of the wicked is sure to be snuffed out. They might enjoy light for a season, but it's eventually put out and therefore they're exposed for their wickedness. More simply put, wicked people will soon have the lights turned off because they can't afford to pay the electricity bills. That's what he's saying. You know, the, the, the light eventually goes out because the Lord will punish you and take away your wealth and so that you can't keep the lights on. Bildad was also insisting that the prosperity enjoyed by wicked people will soon give way to physical disease and financial destitution. And seeing how Job was enduring this time of physical disease and financial destitution, then there should be no doubt that Bildad was accusing Job of being wicked. And listen, this is the same perspective held by those who preach the prosperity gospel uh, here in the church age. For example, I want to consider the way that Joel Osteen put it when he declared this, and I quote, God wants to increase you financially by giving you promotions, fresh ideas, and creativity. That sounds nice. That sounds wonderful. Joel Osteen believes that it's God's plan to increase our financial wealth while we're here in this world. Creflo Dollar also presents the same basic promise. Here's how he put it, and I quote, You have every right to possess material wealth, clothes, jewelry, houses, cars, and money in abundance. It is that wealth that not only meets your needs, but also spreads the gospel message and meets the needs of others. In other words, Mr. Dollar, he he wants you to believe that the Lord wants to give you material wealth uh, uh, of every form because according to him, this is the way the gospel is spread. Never mind that Jesus lived on the streets while he was doing his ministry. Never mind that Paul learned how to be, you know, how to live in abundance and how to be a base. Never mind that. The only way to spread the gospel message is, is with all this wealth. Not only that, but Kenneth Copeland also assures us that those who are poor 
are actually rejecting the covenant of Christ. Think about that for a moment. And, and, and if you don't believe me, let's consider how he put it, and I quote him here, the man who holds to poverty rejects the establishment of the covenant. The man who holds to the covenant rejects poverty. Faith in the covenant, we're talking about the new covenant here, faith in the covenant pleases God. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. So the last part of this I totally agree with. You know, Faith in the covenant pleases God, of course. Without faith, it's impossible to please the Lord. True. But does that mean that the man who holds to poverty rejects the establishment of the covenant? Where is this in the Bible? Where do we find this in the scriptures? What, second Thessalonians? First opinions? I don't know. I, I've never come across this verse. But with this perspective in mind, we shouldn't be surprised to learn that Kenneth Copeland believes, and, and I quote him here, poverty is an evil spirit. Yeah, Kenneth Copeland believes that there's an evil spirit of poverty. I guess these faith teachers haven't yet made it to James chapter 2 where James asks, has God not chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? If, if poverty is an evil spirit, then why has God you know, decided to, to help those who are poor to be rich in faith? And if he helps them to be rich in faith and faith results in wealthy prosperity, then why are they still poor? Listen, if poverty is evidence of an evil spirit, as Kenneth Copeland teaches, then how can James tell us that God has chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Clearly, a lack of money isn't evidence of an evil spirit. And it's certainly not evidence that a person is living in sin. Not only that, but the same can be said for those who are struggling with sickness and disease. And to explain my point, let's consider Bildad's perspective, which is found here in Job chapter 18. If you would look with me there, beginning at verse 7, here Bildad goes on to declare this. Speaking of the wicked man, the steps of his strength are shortened, and his own counsel casts him down. For he is cast into a net by his own feet. And he walks into a snare. The net takes him by the heel, and a snare lays hold of him. A noose is hidden for him on the ground, and a trap for him in the road. Terrors frighten him on every side and drive him to his feet. His strength is starved, and destruction is ready at his side. It devours patches of his skin. The firstborn of death devours his limbs. Here in these verses we find Bildad, he's describing those whose strength fails them so that they can no longer really uh, enjoy a full stride. Their, their stride is shortened because they have no strength. And not only that, but they end up ensnared in their own wickedness. And according to Bildad, their financial poverty becomes physical illness as their evil deeds give way to disease it's, and the sort of disease that eats their skin as death then devours their limbs. That's just... Gross. And I'll remind you that Job at this point in time is covered in oozing boils. And he was scraping his skin with pot shirts, and so no doubt, you know, he was just a an oozy, boily mess. 
And I'll remind you that the reason for the boils was because the Lord had allowed Satan to strike his body with some sort of disease that caused these boils. That being the case, there should be no doubt that Bildad was looking at Job's situation and then attempting to convince Job that he was suffering from some sort of flesh-eating disease that, that was because he was a wicked man who was being punished for his sins. And so he's trying to help Job to come to this place of repentance. Now remember, Job was an upright man, and we know that Job uh, shunned evil, and, and, and we know that the, the suffering that he was experiencing was because of the attacks of Satan. And yet his friends were convinced that the boils on Job's body were evidence of his wickedness. In similar fashion, listen, prosperity gospel, uh, the prosperity preachers, uh, they're also convinced that health equals holiness. While sickness and disease is evidence of depravity. Therefore, many who have embraced this unbiblical theology that we call the word faith movement or, or prosperity gospel, you know, many who embrace you know, the, these uh, false teachings, they immediately jump to the conclusion that a sick Christian must be a sinning Christian. That's what they think, that, that a Christian who is sick is a Christian who's living in unrepentant sin. Let's consider how Joel Osteen puts it when he declares this, and I quote him here, God has already done everything he's going to do. The ball is now in your court. If you want success, if you want wisdom, if you want to be prosperous and healthy, you're going to have to do more than meditate and believe. You must boldly declare words of faith and victory over yourself and your family. I thought I was reading Oprah's secret for here for a second, but no, this is Joel Osteen. And according to Osteen, the Christians who want wealth and health, they have to speak forth words of faith. In similar fashion, the false prophet who told us that the end of COVID was back in 2020, yeah, Kenneth Copeland, uh, he, he presented the same basic idea when he taught his followers how to cast the expecto patronum. Uh, oh, wait, no, that's Harry Potter, sorry. Um, what was, oh, he gave us a prayer uh, to pray for, for health. And, and Kenneth Copeland taught his audience to pray against the dark arts of Satan. And, and, uh, and I quote him here, he says this, I release my faith, I release it against sin, death, the curse, sickness, disease, poverty, lack, and debt. Leave my presence, take your hands off my body. He's, of course, speaking to the enemy there. Sadly, it was last year when Kenneth Copeland finally confessed that he's using a pacemaker because of an irregular heartbeat. Well, I guess the expecto patronum that he's praying isn't working. And, and, and clearly, he hasn't conjured enough faith to be healed of the heart condition that forces him to live with a pacemaker. And listen... I mean, my heart goes out to anybody that's using a pacemaker, but wouldn't this be the right time for him to say, oh, my theology is nonsense? Of course, but he doesn't. And listen, this also hasn't stopped Bethel's Bill Johnson, who lost his wife to cancer. It hasn't stopped Bill Johnson from insisting that he refuses to make room for sickness. Here's how he put it when he declared this, and I quote, I refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. Then, in an attempt to stamp out all sickness, Bill Johnson started the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry. And while they claim to teach kids how to 
heal the sick, well, they ended up closing this school down back in 2020 because, you know, the COVID pandemic and all. Wait a minute. You have a school where kids are learning how to heal the sick and you close it down for COVID? Why don't you just go heal everybody of COVID? Nope. They're not ready. They're not ready. Now listen, don't get me wrong, because I totally believe that the Lord still heals. So I don't want you to get it twisted and think Bungie doesn't believe in healing. I totally believe in healing. I totally believe the Lord still heals people. And one reason I say this is because I know the Lord healed me when I first became a Christian. My, my brain was so um, just destroyed with all the drugs that I did. I, I, it was hard to read the Bible. And I know that in one night the Lord healed my brain. I woke up the next day and all of a sudden uh, I, I could just clearly understand everything that I was reading from the scriptures. And it was just amazing. I know the Lord still heals. And I've seen people healed here in our church, people who have come forward and asked to be anointed with oil and prayed over by the leaders of the church. And I've seen people healed. And I've also seen the Lord use, you know, medicine and doctors to heal people. And I've also seen at times when the Lord allows them to continue being sick. And yet I know they're people of faith. Should I tell them, oh, well, I guess you just don't have enough faith. Sorry. You, You need to, you know, conjure up a little bit more faith if you want to get healed. Listen, I've wept with those that the Lord chose to withhold healing from. And, and I don't know why. I don't know why he heals one Christian who prays for healing and doesn't you know, choose to heal another Christian who's also prayed. But here's what I do know is that those who insist that sickness is evidence of sin, well, they've been duped by an unbiblical doctrine. And again, I mean, I totally believe that all sickness stems, you know, and and can be traced back to the fall of Adam and all of that, right? So ultimately, according to the big picture, sickness is from sin. But that doesn't mean that, you know, the sins that I struggle with today are why I might be sick, you know, or or struggling with some sort of illness. And to prove my point, I would uh, encourage you to consider the illness or the sickness or, or the, the issue that Paul was dealing with in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, it's verses 7 through 10 where Paul declares this. He says, Lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh. Where was it? In his flesh. A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, which speaks of sickness. I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. As we consider the way that Paul was struggling with whatever infirmity that he was suffering from, there should be no doubt that whatever the physical ailment was, it was most certainly not evidence of unrepentant sin. And we can be certain that there was no lack of faith. I mean, we're talking about Paul here. 
the man who went out and suffered greatly for the sake of planting churches. Those who insist that sickness is evidence that a Christian is living in unrepentant sin have not truly taken the time to consider what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. The fact is this, that you know, if the Lord tarries longer than we'd like, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm shooting for today, please Lord, you know, but should the Lord tarry, we're all going to die of some disease. We're all going to die of some disease, and I just wanted to end the study with that tonight. So, No, but, but seriously, like, if the Lord tarries and, and we continue to live for the rest of our days here on the earth, we're all going to die of some sort of disease. And listen, the proof of my point, and I, and I don't say this with a smile on my face, But the proof of my point can be found in the long list of prosperity preachers who died from disease. I don't have time to get into the whole list. I've looked at it. Even Fred Price, you know, during COVID, he died of COVID. He was a prosperity preacher, spoke about word faith healing and faith to heal, and Fred Price died of COVID. And there's a long list of prosperity preachers who preached this idea that if you just have the right faith and, and, and you avoid sin and, and you'll be healthy, you'll, you'll be healthy for the rest of your days. Well, how many days? And if the person has enough faith, can they just continue living forever? No, they eventually die because this body must die because this body must be buried so that we can you know, then receive a resurrected body which will be free from disease. But listen, there's a long running list of prosperity preachers who have died of disease, which is proof that the prosperity gospel will not save us from the demise of this fallen flesh. And and, and that's okay because, listen, the true healing that Jesus promised is found in the new body that we're going to receive in the resurrection. I'm not trying to hold on to this life any longer than I have to. I'm ready for that brand new body which will be free from disease, free from pain, free from tears, free from death forever. So the prosperity gospel, it it doesn't really work. But with this as the focus, I want to pick up our study and consider more about Bildad's perspective on death. And so if you would look with me here at Job chapter 18, we'll begin reading there at verse 14. Here he declares he is, and again, we're talking about the wicked person, he is uprooted from the shelter of his tent and they parade him before the king of terrors. They dwell in his tent who are none of his. Brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. His roots are dried out below and his branch withers above. The memory of him perishes from the earth, and he has no name among the renowned. He is driven from light into darkness and chased out of the world. He has neither son nor posterity among his people, nor any remaining in his dwellings. Those in the west are astonished at his day, and those in the east are frightened. Surely such are the dwellings of the wicked." And this is the place of him who does not know God. 
Now, here in the final verses of this chapter, we find Bildad. He's attempting to scare Job into repenting of sins that Job wasn't actually committing. And, you know, he's trying to say, hey, this is the end of wicked people. And, and there's certainly some truths here uh, that, you know, we, we find then repeated in the New Testament where those who won't repent, those who refuse to re- trust in Jesus Christ, yeah, uh, they're going to find themselves, you know, being brought before the king of terrors, so to speak. And, and they're going to find themselves being uh, in, in eternal torment according to God's plan. But Bildad here is convinced that Job was living in sin, and again, the reason why is because he lost all of his livestock, which effectively left him penniless. And his health was less than sound as the boils on his body continued to weep and ooze. You know, and, and so, so you know, Bildad is sitting here looking at his friend thinking, I, I've got to get this guy to a place of repentance. And so I'm going to present him with the end of wicked people. I think that Bildad was convinced that the death of Job would bring him before the king of terrors, and the chances are Bildad was presenting this as some sort of poetic personification of death. And if so, then Job was not only concerned about the pain and the suffering that Job was experiencing here in this world, but he was also concerned about the final destination of his friend. Further proof of my point can be found there in verse 15, where Bildad refers to the way in which brimstone is scattered on his dwelling. And this seems to be a reference to the sort of destruction experienced by Sodom and Gomorrah. And so, yeah, Bildad was a fire and brimstone preacher, so to speak. We should also notice there in verse 16, where Bildad compared the death of the wicked to a tree whose roots are dried out and whose branch withers above. And and so there's no fruit coming from this individual. There's no lasting fruit for the wicked. And in verse 17, Bildad assures Job that the memory of him would perish from the earth and his name would be remembered no more. In verse 18, he assures Job that he would be driven from light into darkness and he's going to be chased out of this world, ultimately left with nothing in the afterlife. And this, of course, includes uh, neither son nor posterity among his people and no place for his family to dwell in, uh, according to what he says in verse 19. And without debate, Bildad was attempting to bring Job to a point of repentance. And I, and I believe that he probably had the right heart and, and the right reasons for doing this. He, he, he totally believes Job is living in sin. He totally believes that Job is about to die. I mean, looking at his body all boiled up and whatnot. And so he's basically trying to, trying to bring, his, uh, bring his friend Job to, a, a, he's basically, you know, trying to help him have a come to Jesus moment, so to speak. And he tells him here that, that you know, terror is going to fill his heart as, he, as he's brought into the presence of the king of terrors. And while Bildad Bill was convinced that his perspective was on point, I'll remind you again that there's a biblical reason to reject his point of view. There's a biblical reason to reject the idea that Job was on his way to hell. Because Job, remember, was an upright man who feared God and shunned evil. Job was a man who truly had a relationship with God. We also remember uh, back in chapter 1, where Job was engaging in a sacrificial system, which was probably you know, something that the Lord had revealed to people prior to, uh, prior to the Old Covenant. And so, you know, Job is engaging in this sacrificial system, which was probably established there in the garden when God slaughtered the first animal for the covering 
of Adam and Eve's sins. So Job is a man who loves the Lord. Job is a man who's struggling with what's happening in his life, and yet he was a a man who feared the Lord. At the same time, though, Bildad is correct that those who are wicked and won't repent, well, they're, they're headed for everlasting punishment. With all this in mind, I just want to take a moment to consider you know, what, what the scriptures actually say about the prosperity gospel and the different destinations of those who believe in God and those who don't. And with that, I just want to consider a story that Jesus presents in Luke chapter 16. There he presents us with the details about the life of two men. And what's interesting about this is that it seems parabolic, and yet all the parables in the, in the Gospels are announced as parables, and this is not announced as a parable. And it's in Luke 16 where the Lord Jesus presents us with the details about these two men. The first was a rich man who was clothed in the finest linens and he fared sumptuously every day, ate the, ate the best food and drank the best wine. And, and in light of the prosperity gospel, well, this would seem to be evidence that this was a man who was blessed and highly, highly favored as he was living his best life now. Then there's the second man. He was a beggar named Lazarus. And while we don't know exactly what was wrong with him, what, what Jesus tells us is that you know, he was covered in sores and the dogs would come and lick on the sores and it's just gross. But in light of... I'm, I'm more concerned about the dog licking than the sores, you know, because don't get me started. But anyway, if we consider the prosperity gospel, then Lazarus, well, the, well Lazarus would be considered a, a sinner, and a man of no faith because he's got sores and he's poor and he's begging. And wouldn't that be, according to the prosperity gospel, evidence that this guy's a sinner? Well, the day came when they both died. And according to Jesus, these two men ended up in two different places. And it's in Luke 16, uh, beginning at verse 22, where Jesus says that it was uh, that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom and then cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, And likewise, Lazarus, evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. Now here in these verses, we find the Lord Jesus helping his audience to understand that physical health and worldly wealth aren't the best ways to to determine our connection with Christ. As a matter of fact, you can be a beggar who is full of sores and yet still be accepted in the beloved by faith in Jesus Christ. At the same time, you can, ha- you can be the healthiest, wealthiest person on the planet and yet still miss out on the everlasting blessings that belong to those who believe in Jesus. With all this being the case, I encourage you to disregard the misguided perspective of Bildad. I'm not saying that everything he said was wrong, but his perspective on Job was completely incorrect. 
Job's pain and suffering was not evidence that Job was a man who was living in sin. And with that, we should also reject the false doctrines of prosperity preachers who would have us to believe that physical health and worldly wealth are indicators of solid faith. These are not indicators of solid faith. I know people whose bodies wasted away from cancer as their bank accounts were depleted by their hospital bills. And yet their faith was stronger than the average Christian I know. I've sat at the bedside of many who are just dying of cancer and just heard words of faith coming out of their mouth that just blew my mind. And so these preachers who tell us that you know, a sick Christian is a sinning Christian and these sorts of things. It's not necessarily true. Maybe they are, but the sickness doesn't prove it. The poverty doesn't prove it. In light of their example, I I encourage you, let's reject the prosperity gospel and at the same time, let's walk by faith. Let's walk by faith and not by sight because it's impossible to please the Lord unless we're walking by faith. And as we consider this directive to walk by faith and not by sight, well then, if you're looking at your bank account, are you walking by faith or by sight? If you're looking at, at your, your latest checkup at the, at the doctor, is, you know, and are you walking by faith or sight? Let's walk by faith with the Lord Jesus Christ as we rest in the fact that those who trust in him well, we're going to receive the everlasting blessings of both health and wealth in the afterlife. Once we enter into the glorious presence of our, of our Redeemer, we will receive our resurrected body and we will enjoy perfect health and wealth and, and everything else the Lord has us, uh, for us forevermore. As of today, though, don't just look at someone who's sick and think, oh, they must be under the punishment of God. Don't, look, don't just look at somebody who's poor and think, oh, God's punishing them. And nor should we look at someone, somebody who's rich and healthy as someone that's being blessed and highly favored. These aren't good indicators. Let's find out about their faith. Because it's our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ that pleases him. And with that, let's walk by faith and not by sight. Let's pray.